wells are becoming dry and people can't cultivate anymore okay so it's become an irreversible change in many places saline water has come in which has destroyed the soil so we have all this irreversible damage happening on our fields because of this water situation this is on the climate record i'm your host christoph jospe this podcast is to amplify ideas the people working on them and practical solutions to solving climate change. Hello and welcome to the On the Climate Record podcast. My name is Christoph Jospe and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Rimjim Agarwal, who is an associate professor at the School of Sustainability at Arizona State University. Rimjim, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's thank you for inviting me. I'm very much looking forward to it. So I guess to get into it, I'm very curious, what are some of the drivers that led you to where you are today in your studies in the School of Sustainability? Yeah, okay. So as you can probably make out from my accent, I'm from India. And what is interesting is every country has its own way of defining its generations. Like here, we talk about the baby boomers and the millennials and the Generation Z. And these are according to, you know, certain landmark events in the history of the country. Like here, it was the World War and then the digital revolution. Similarly, in India, we had the country got independence from the British rule in 1947. So there was the generation of the freedom fighters and then the generation who came to build the nation, the dreamers about the nation. And then my generation, sort of mid-60s, early 70s, I call my generation the generation of the Green Revolution because that was a defining moment for the country. In the late 60s, early 70s, the country had gone through a very devastating famine. This happened in the late 60s. And then the Green Revolution was seen as a way of introducing new technologies that could take the country out of its, you know, the situation of hunger we were in and dependence on foreign food aid. And so I, my father was a plant breeder and I grew up on the campus of an agricultural research institute. And the Green Revolution was the talk of the town. You know, we uh, saw the Green Revolution as something that could save the country from hunger. And at that time, I remember uh, Norman Borlaug, who got the Nobel Prize for, for introducing the new seed varieties had come to India. And we saw him as this great hero who was going to save the country. And for me, that he was a big role model, as also was my father. And I wanted to pursue studies in science to become a scientist myself so I could contribute to nation building. But then as I grew older, I came to also realize the very devastating environmental impacts of of the green revolution and the impact it was having on poor people and it was also leading to increases in inequities and so on and that was sort of a big shock to me and i as i be- turned more and more into social sciences and particularly it's the study of economics i became more and more interested in looking beyond the technology, the, the only the technology point to understand the wider societal and environmental implications 
of this technology. And now when I teach my students about Green Revolution, they talk about the violence inflicted by Green Revolution. But I grew among people who really sincerely believed in the benefits of the Green Revolution. But at that time, they were so narrowly focused on a specific goal, which was let's increase productivity, let's increase production, that the wider systemic impacts of the technology were overlooked. And that has shaped my uh, future career and my entry into sustainability, because I think we need to get out of this mindset of being very narrowly goal-oriented on a very specific goal and become more multidisciplinary, look at issues from various perspectives to avoid these kind of unintended consequences. So that's how I landed up into sustainability. And what better place to think about these things than Arizona State University, which can provide more of a systemic or holistic lens to seeing how some of these challenges interrelate. I'm fascinated. I want to go back to if you can remember, it was specifically that made you feel a little bit disillusioned through the Green Revolution. I mean, of course, here we are talking about increasing yields and maximizing profitability. And indeed, it is at the expense of a system that is not capturing the externalities where maybe you now are producing synthetic fertilizer that's creating great pollution upstream or applying pesticides or certain varieties of seeds, which are now way more homogenous and less resilient. But when did you start questioning some of the premises that had been so sort of so positively promoted by some of the Green Revolution folks? So I would say there were a couple of defining moments. One was I come from the state of Punjab in India, which is in the northwest of the country, which was the primary site of where the Green Revolution technologies were started. And as I said, when I was growing up in my childhood, this was the exemplar case of increasing yields and growing prosperity. And things were looking very good, very bright in the beginning. Okay. But then when I was in college, we came to hear about all these particularly increasing incidents of cancer in the state. It became the cancer state of India. Uh, huge incidents of cancer due to all the pesticide poisoning, exposure, inadequate safety measures related to pesticide use and so on. And that was... I think one of the moments that really made me disillusioned. The other was increasing incidence of farmer suicides. This happened all over India. And I was absolutely sort of very much pained by it because to think about farmers becoming so frustrated and depressed to take on their own lives. I mean, how bad can the situation be to drive someone to take their own life? I think that was what was sort of really made me very disillusioned about the about the Green Revolution. Mm, yeah, and it makes perfect sense to apply a socio lens to the mm. entire farming space, because indeed, it doesn't just become about growing food, but it's mm -hmm. being part of the system through which you can grow food. And it one perhaps under 
discussed topic in the United States, and I'd be curious in the parallels to India, but is the amount of debt that farmers are taking on mm -hmm. often promoted through technologies that are developed by the Green Revolution. And so we're starting to see perhaps a return to something that is less debt ridden. And yet at the same time, some of the same forces are perhaps looking to keep that power structure at play. But I'm sure you can, yeah. I, I, I guess I have to ask the question more directly. I'm curious, what, what are some of the parallels between the India and the United States from the sociological lens? And what are some of the elements that we might, that the listeners should be aware of? Yes, so one of the primary both cause and consequence of this industrial uh, agriculture has been these debts that the farmers are taking on because they cannot, they have to purchase all these ints and cannot purchase them from their existing savings. And the, the further problem with that is that the debt just keeps deepening because, for example, in the case of India, when these farmers, they purchase pesticides, okay? And as you know, you know, when you purchase, uh, you start with a lower dose of pesticide and then you go to a more powerful pesticide and then you get onto this treadmill. And so this treadmill implies you have to take more and more loans in order to just be able to repay the old loans and be able to just survive. And that is what actually these increasing debt was what was leading the farmers to the point of suicide because it was very embarrassing uh, to not be able to pay the debt in a tradition in, of a country where debt is not necessarily seen as something, you know, that you'd like to talk to your neighbors or family about. And this is a little bit different, I think, in the US. Uh, you know, it is very much a society that lives on credit. There is less of a savings culture. But in India, just this whole, as I said, this getting on this treadmill of increasing use of pesticides leading to more and more debt. And then the intersection of this debt with nature's debt. So we are also taking a debt from nature. So we're not, there is this interlocking of financial debt and nature's debt to nature, which is leading us to complete devastation. And I think the parallel with US is it is that there is a similar dependence on purchased inputs on getting things from outside the system in order to a, be able to just survive and cultivate as you were doing earlier in order to do that and once you get into it's a feeling of a trap i think that is the similarity that the feeling of getting into a trap and losing your independence, because very often it happens both in US and in India, more so in US, that you enter into these contracts. Okay, so the very often the loan is offered by the person who's also going to purchase the product and you have to take the loan in order to be able to purchase kind of inputs that contractor wants you to engage with and so you lose freedom which had been the defining characteristic of farming both here and back in India farmers always saw themselves as free and being able to do what they wanted to do so this feeling of being trapped I think is is lies at the crux of the situation in both countries that's an excellent answer and when I think about 
some of the terms being used to describe this field, field, it seems as if freedom is indeed an embodiment of these terms, such as yes. sustainability or regeneration. But I'm curious to hear your definition of these terms in their truest sense, and then also perhaps your definition of how these terms maybe can be co-opted. Yeah. Yes. So this, to me, a regeneration is about, it differs a little bit from the term sustainability also. It's not just continuing to do or maintaining what was being done, but to change the paradigm. So instead of getting all these purchased outside inputs, you are leveraging the regenerative capacity of of the biological system of life itself life is by itself in its nature regenerative and rejuvenating and we have sort of lost that life element and substituted it by industrial inputs and those are dead inputs and you need to apply more and more of that and that creates this whole mentality of scarcity also and being in debt all of these concepts are related so to me regenerative agriculture is a paradigm shift it's a way to get out of the trap because otherwise you know the situation both in us and india is as farmers feel themselves trapped they find no way by definition trap means you don't find a way out unless the whole system changes and not just you you can stop applying pesticides but if your neighbors don't, the pests will come to your field. So it, it needs to be a system-wide change in our way of thinking, in our way of operating, in the way we embody the principle of you know, life, as I was saying, as opposed to dead input. So an important part of regenerative agriculture is recognizing the potential of soil as a living matter, as life, as composed of all these microbes and their dynamics that constantly create, you know, that constantly in, improve the quality of the soil and enhance its nutrient quality. There are a set of microbes that are doing that. But if you disregard that and you're putting this dead inputs in terms of chemicals, you are destroying that whole soil ecosystem. And so Regeneration is really about understanding this life-giving intrinsic quality of the soil, thinking about how we can improve soil health that not only contributes to better productivity of crops, but it also helps retain moisture. It also helps improve biodiversity both below the ground and above the ground. And then all of these factors feed on each other. So you have improved soil nutrients, all this wonderful nutrient cycling going on because of all this activity of the microbes that then leads to enhanced biodiversity, which then leads to improved, further improved soil health, which then leads to better crops, more healthy crops and crops that are um, good for human health as well. So it's all a system that feeds on itself to rejuvenate and regenerate. So, and it, it brings the idea of abundance as opposed to scarcity in when, when we think about this as a system-wide approach. Yeah, thank you for that answer. And it it's interesting to, to go back to my my question of where the term might be co-opted when we were yeah. preparing for this podcast. You know, you referred to, well, regenerative agriculture might be an old wine in a new bottle. 
And yeah. indeed, I, I love that framing and I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit. But it also brings to mind a conversation I had, it's been a couple months now, but it was with a company that they sell billions of dollars worth of inputs to farmers every year. And I was speaking with someone who's rather high up at their organization who was helping to determine that company's regenerative agriculture strategy. Mm -hmm. And he flat out said to me, I love regenerative agriculture and all about the carbon markets and seeing this, yes. you know, the next thing where our company is moving, but not if it means that we are going to take a 20% hit on the inputs that we're selling to our farmers. And mm -hmm. right there, I just wanted to pull my hair out because it was one of those moments. It's like, well, can these input companies even be part of the regenerative agriculture transformation and how, and maybe that's just more depth to the question, which is where might this phrase be at greatest risk of becoming co-opted. Yeah. So as you began by saying, this seems like old wine in new bottles. And I think that is true because speaking first for India, if you look at all these regenerative practices such as cover crops, crop rotations, improving soil health and combining livestock grazing with rotational with with crops and all of that, that has been part of traditional agriculture in our country for a very long time and before the Green Revolution came in. So this was part of the tradition of people and they understand this very well. Okay. So when regenerative agriculture came to India, I mean, this was like, yeah, we know it. I mean, this was our tradition. But now you're right that the term has been co-opted by the corporate sector and we need to be careful because now it's been spoken in the language of carbon and carbon markets and how you can derive benefits from 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 this um, new way of agriculture in the form of you know how being able to sell again the idea is that instead of focusing on the life aspect on the living aspect of the soil and its own capacity to be able to regenerate itself the idea is again to do it through outside inputs and through this, again, relations of dependence that we talk about. So this whole relation of dependence, which leads to debts and all this debt cycle and loss of freedom that we were talking about, there is a real risk that this could happen with regenerative agriculture also as we bring in carbon markets and carbon financing and measuring everything in terms of carbon, which is helpful. But I think we need to be again, and it may be done with good intentions. But again, I think this is why I began with the story about Green Revolution. Again, it was initiated by people who had very good intentions. But then the seed companies took over and the fertilizer companies and the pesticide companies. And I think we need to be careful that, that this term is not co-opted again, as you said, by the, by the corporate culture. Indeed. And of course, this is more this is about more than just semantics this is yes. fundamentally about a shift in our society and mm -hmm. to truly see a transformation where there's resilience and mm -hmm. sort of interdependence amongst humans in the land and the way that we can manage it that is able to source much of our you know the macro and micronutrients that we need from the land i am curious on some level you know you do hear of folks I guess the skeptics, and I, I love speaking to the skeptics mm -hmm. because it's, you know, most farmers today are not adopters of what would be 
mm -hmm. would fall into quote unquote regenerative agriculture. And many of them will say, well, you know, I need all of these inputs. I need my macronutrients. I need my NPK and or nit nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium and some of the micronutrients and some of the things that people are suggesting they might work for a period of time, but I still need to be maximizing my crop productivity and that trumps everything else. And, you know, when sometimes you meet hard times, it seems like those nice experimental ideas fall by the wayside. What would you say to some of these skeptics? Yes, that is a good question. And we are finding that a lot in Arizona, where, for instance, even with cover crops, you need water and water is becoming increasingly scarce here. So there are important trade-offs and you're correct about the nutrients and getting, I think our mentality has become that we need things in, you know, packaged forms, this much nitrogen, this much phosphorus, this much potassium, and it comes in a package and we put it and then, you know, we have a formula by which the yield will increase and it makes things simpler. But I think farmers are also realizing that this doesn't make sense over the long run. And that is why, you know, permaculture, which is permanent agriculture, is also part of regenerative agriculture, which is taking a long run view of, of things. And many times when I talk to the farmers, the thing that really clicks to them is about their children and grandchildren. You know, you'll use the language of sustainability in abstract terms. It doesn't work. And particularly for a very long time, farmers were very resistant to any talk about climate change, but they see it happening. We are in the middle of a long-term drought and they do realize that they need to do all these things to, let's say, increase the moisture retention capacity of the soil and to build soil health, which not, on, not so much for their generation, but for the children and grandchildren, it's very important that that wealth in the soil is recognized and that they i and so i think it is a matter of very good communication and 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 trying it out for themselves that is why i welcome all these initiatives that are now being proposed to give incentives to farmers i think to be very honest yes initially it would take we need to give some incentives to farmers to make the shift because they will not Otherwise, because the, you know, the, the industrialized agriculture, as you said, is so much more attractive. So we need to first, I think we need to see it as a process wherein a stepwise process where, wherein first we need to give these monetary incentives for them to shift over to this new system. Let them see the benefits of it themselves. One of the problems with both the green revolution and the current way we have been operating is somebody comes from outside and tells you what to do. And farmers particularly hate that a lot. So I think we need to give them the incentives, give them the space, the time to do the experimentation on their own. So if we are finding now there are a number of research studies that show that these practices in the long provide significant benefits. And so if we are able to provide that space and time with the incentives to the farmers, let them experiment it on their own and have their own peer group, which supports them in this together with scientists. I think we need to create this whole ecosystem around this new shift. So farmers don't feel alone 
and they don't feel like their inputs have not been taken into account. Let them experiment with it and let us support that experimentation for them to discover on their own that this would yield long-term benefits and it's in their interest to do it over the long run. Yeah, good answer. I like that. It brings to mind something that someone was saying to me a few weeks ago in terms of finding solutions that work. And it's not about necessarily creating any new solutions, but observing, mm-hmm. hey, there's there's a door over here and people have been walking through it successfully for a really long time. And then dissecting what are the elements that made that successful and how can that be shared? And mm-hmm. indeed, oftentimes in academia, it's easy to hypothesize or theorize yes. and without yeah. having actual practical knowledge and know-how and having farmer groups talking to each other and engaging with each other, then the theory just stays theory. But then when it gets sort of put mm-hmm. on the ground, it, it makes a big difference. I, I want to go back to some of the comments you've made about water, mm-hmm. because as you point out, water is so important and so critical and a critical element to regenerative agriculture. What has your relationship to water been over the course of your career? And how have your opinions or thoughts shifted through studying it or understanding how it interacts with your work? Okay, so again, going back to uh, the Green Revolution. So one important aspect of the Green Revolution was that there were these high yielding varieties of rice and wheat, let's say, in the case of India, that would give maximum yield if they were combined with controlled Mm -hmm. amounts of fertilizer and water inputs, okay? So those precise, those controlled amounts were very important, okay? And that led to a shift in many of these areas where the new varieties were adopted. It led to a shift from community sources of irrigation and water management to private management. And the way it happened was, you know, these canals, for instance, and rivers, they used to irrigate from there and it used to be communally shared. But then there was, with the Green Revolution, the need for individual control of water. And that led to a lot of investment in private wells, okay, because you dig a well and then you have the groundwater, which is supposed to serve your needs and it's on your demand source of water. And over time, I saw, so this was also one of the disillusionments that we were talking about earlier, that the groundwater table has gone down so much in the, what we call the Gangetic Plain of India, which supports millions of livelihoods, that it has gone down to a level where uh, cannot be, you know, the areas are going dry, the water table has gone down so much, it cannot be wells are becoming dry and people can't cultivate anymore. Okay, so it's become an irreversible change in many places. Saline water has come in, which has destroyed the soil. So we have all this irreversible damage happening on our fields because of this water situation. And I see it here in Arizona also. We have a huge problem in Western US on uh, with groundwater depletion. Okay, and that is... Again, groundwater was our source of resilience. That is, in Arizona particularly, it is uh, we are mining water because we get very little rainfall. So all the water we are mining out 
And this is going to deprive the future generations of an important source of resilience. So that is one part that this is the agricultural use of water. And because of the way we have managed that, now it is seen as being conflicting with urban uses of water. So now as urbanization is expanding everywhere in the world, it is seen as being in conflict with agriculture. So agriculture is often blamed because on a worldwide scale, it consumes something like 70 to 80 percent of the freshwater supplies. And we do realize we need this for, for growing food. But then we are also have increasing urban demands with population growth. And there is this conflict which has now become a central point of my research. This, this, the way we are framing it. So in social sciences, we talk a lot about how you frame questions because the way you frame issues then also shape the way you find solutions and you define solutions, where you look for solutions, who you engage. And now it's become a conflict between urban dwellers and farmers. And that's not a very healthy way to find solutions. I think we need, so what we are doing more and more now in my research, one part of the research is to think more, instead of conflicts, think more about partnerships between urbanists and agriculture. So think about ways we can have urban farming, okay, which contributes to urban resilience and contributes to also better water conservation and management. And this has now become, I think, come. we have been talking about it for a long time, but with the COVID, as when people saw empty grocery shelves, that was, again, a defining moment in our lives. And people became very sensitive or, or they became aware of the issue that we need to have some food that is grown locally and we need to have better control over our food systems here in the urban areas and the and i think the urban areas in the urban areas we are finding much stronger uptake of these new paradigms such as regenerative agriculture we have in our Phoenix metropolitan area, several far urban farmers who are taking up. And this is not just the hippie crowd, but I think a number of farmers are becoming open to this idea because they also are now better linked to their consumers. So there is a better link which we had lost earlier between farmers and consumers. And so long as consumers value how their food is grown and the environmental consequences of their food, including impacts on water and soil health and so on. And they can actually relate to the farmers and they know about the farmers who are growing their food. There, you, you see, you've established a link that leads to a very different pathway. And the other part that my research has taken is when you have conflicts, okay, then questions of how you will allocate scarce supplies become very important. And what we often see in these times of conflict and scarcity is that the powerful take, take away the scarce resource, right? And we are seeing this in the Phoenix metropolitan area as well as in areas of India which have faced scarcity that people are being deprived of even drinking water needs. And we need something in our political and legal system to be able to assure you know, that people can afford 
and are provided affordable access to safe drinking water because that's a basic need. We all know that it is a basic need. But now with these growing conflicts, I think it has become very important that it's not only recognized as a basic need, but it is seen as an obligation of the state and non-state actors to be able to make sure that people have all people have affordable access to safe water. And that, this got me interested in this question of human right to water. So in, nine, in so just recently in 2010, that the UN General Assembly recognized this human right to water and sanitation. We always recognize this as a basic need, but making it a human right is making explicit the legal obligations and legal responsibilities of certain actors. And these are not just state actors, but also non-state actors and community-based actors to take the responsibility to make sure that people are at least assured of this basic need. And there is affordability. And this was brought into sharp focus when we had this you know, water privatization in various parts of the world. So there was this corporate interest in water, taking up water supply, water utilities, and several cases around the world where people were denied, particularly the poor and vulnerable, were denied even just basic drinking needs. And we need to, what kind of society are we building if we don't even, we can't even assure affordable access to drinking water for all people, not just, you know, citizens or people who can pay the price of water. So we need to move water from being commodified to being in public domain. This has been also an important part of my research agenda. Thank you for that response and for laying out some of the complexity or nuance. There's much that I'd like to comment on. I mean, one, I, I do think that the framing of water as a human right is both provocative and necessary and something that we must get to as quickly as possible. You know, it does evoke Eleanor Ulström's common pool resources that mm -hmm. in a way we've gotten, we've moved, moved away to and now through regenerative agriculture might be returning mm -hmm. to. You said many beautiful things, but one thing I do want to pick up on is the social scientists framing of problems and questions you know mm -hmm. often so sometimes i think of sustainability or regenerative agriculture as this hammer and everything looks like a nail and you're going out mm -hmm. with the right way to look at it and much more importantly is actually to question some of the premises that have gotten us mm -hmm. to where mm -hmm. we are today and giving ourselves the freedom to really ask the right questions so that the framing can be in service of, I think, the end goal that this world very much yearns for. What advice would you give to those who are asking questions? Yes. So I think the problem definition is very important. So for instance, in the Green Revolution, the problem definition was increase food production and make countries reliant because the problem was the famines we need to and hunger and we need to and the the way the hunger problem was defined was that there is not much food available okay so only if you can increase the availability of food you would have solved the problem and that's what they did so increased food yields you know crop yields are in, is increasing the availability of food 
And the question was not about who is growing the food, whose livelihoods are you protecting, and for how long are you making sure that the biological system on which those livelihoods depend are able to sustain over the long run? Or are you asking questions of whose livelihoods are you leaving only? So the way the Green Revolution was framed is, let's first start with the most capable farmers and the most capable regions where there is already good irrigation supply, farmers who have uh, you know good water rights and land rights and are educated. Let's start with them because our purpose is in the short term, increase production as much as you. So, so you see, the, the way you define the problem is then defining the way you come to the solution. But I think one way to get out of that trap that I'm discovering, particularly in academia, is to talk more and more with people on the ground. That is what I have found it very helpful. So in my work, I engage a lot with farmers here in Arizona, as well as in my work in India, engaging with farmers, get to know how they think about climate change. Right now, the debate, the way the farmers see themselves is that the farming community is against these climate activists. So climate activists see agriculture as, you know, one of the big sources of um, carbon emissions. And these are the people who are, you know, need to be managed and need to be taken to the right track. And so there needs to be more and more legislation on them. And that's what farmers are resisting. But if you go a step you know, go deeper and talk to them, just talk to them about what their problems are. They will automatically, you know, farmers here in Arizona, the moment you talk to them, they talk about droughts. They talk about growing water scarcity, varied, you know, this high variability in rainfall that we are encountering, the increase in temperatures. And you start from that common grounding and you ask them about, you know, how they see the problem, how they see themselves coming out of the problem, what are the ways that the government and other parts of the society can help them. And I think that, and you open the conversation, I think that that is the other part, that we have restricted ourselves to very narrow ways of thinking. Okay, so the narrow way of thinking is defining everything, all our indicators, metrics, are based on yields and efficiency. And I am an economist, so I know this. This is my bread and butter, you know, everything in terms of growth and efficiency. And we need to break that paradigm that it's not all about growth and it's not all about increasing short-run efficiency. Many times, if you bring the conversation about long-run efficiency, long-term sustainability, then you see all of these considerations of equity and freedom that we were talking about, democracy. All of these are important values, responsibility, accountability. All of these values are very important. They lie at the core of sustainable thinking. And once you, as I said, once you talk, start talking to farmers about their children and grandchildren, you will see they bring all these concepts Maybe they use a little bit different language, but all of this comes into their conversation. And I think those conversations need to be tapped and we need to broaden the conversation rather than, you know, all the time talking and measuring things in terms of, you know, like I said, growth and efficiency and just the metric of money. So we're talking more and more about like you talk to people, they talk a lot about 
you know, what is it that gives them happiness or well-being? And as you bring those conversations in, I think regenerative agriculture, we have a number of urban farmers here who are taking to regenerative agriculture, not for anything else, but because it gives them a purpose in life and fulfillment and, you know, gets them out of this dependency trap. It makes them feel that they are contributing something to society. That is very important. People don't want to be seen as charity receivers and just receivers of subsidies. And that's true with farmers also. You know, they want to hear that they are just receiving these subsidies and they want to be able to contribute to the long-term building of the nation. And I think once we bring these conversations in, regenerative agriculture automatically sort of comes in. Thank you. That's a that's a beautiful answer. I think approaching anything with a sense of curiosity and humility and desire for the other well-being and not presuming that the answer is written is one thing or another, but rather, you you know, I think a lot about how to open the discussion where you can find the common ground and find an agreed upon end goal. And I Mm -hmm. am 100% with you in rural urban supposed rural or urban divide is actually not mm-hmm. truly a divide but a construct mm-hmm. that we put you know in our own way so I, i'm curious what types of questions have you found to be most effective when bridging the divide for some of the implementers and what questions have you found least effective hmm so let me give you rather than talking in abstract terms let me give you a concrete example so when i joined arizona state university i was earlier in the on the eastern coast mostly i was educated at cornell then was at maryland for some time so arizona and the whole western southwestern agriculture was a very new concept to me and when i came here in the phoenix metropolitan area the major focus was on urbanization and our school was very much devoted to urban studies because that was the cool thing to do right everyone saw agriculture in a long-term decline in this region because of you know we we are a desert and people would say that just doesn't make sense to grow crops here Uh, we don't have water we need to have cities and we need to grow those cities that's the path to prosperity and that was this growth oriented thinking was the dominant paradigm in uh, arizona when i came in here and it was because of my background i found it a little absurd and because you know i have to think about my own livelihood my work is in agriculture and i'm coming to a place and they say there is no prospect for agriculture here and we started a project where we said we'll go around talk to farmers talk to them about what their future vision of agriculture is and we started with farmers and then other members in the community So let's just talk to them about farming as not just an economic enterprise and not just, you know, being pitted as do you grow food locally or you should we import it from outside, but as a lifestyle, as a culture. Okay, so that is how we framed the conversations, even to urban dwellers. How do you see agriculture in this? Because if we have a long tradition of agriculture, through the Native Americans settled here in, in, in growing crops. And what do you think about agriculture as a lifestyle, as a form of culture, as 
a way of, of enhancing resilience of this region. And that then opened up a number of very interesting conversation, which we did not have earlier when you just, you know, pe what people were doing earlier was just projecting historical trends. And that is a very bad trap to follow. Yeah. If you are just going, and this is what academics are very fond of, we have all these wonderful models that allow us to project from the past into the future. But what it means is what we have done in the past, we will continue doing it, doing in the future. But that's not the way we want to uh, dream and think about our, our societies, right? And so if you want to break out of that shackle, you need to completely abandon that approach. And as you said, open up the debate in its full, like holistic and multidimensional nature. So you bring in con conversations about cultures, about stories, about history, and then you see people respond in a very different way. And we saw that actually talking to farmers and community members, their vision was not of a declining agriculture, that agriculture would slowly disappear from the, from, um, the state and particularly from the metropolitan area. They wanted even in the metropolitan area that we must have some agriculture that is embedded as part of our lifestyle and as part of our character as a metropolitan city. And now this has been, as, as I said, very much reinforced after uh, the COVID crisis. Now you, you've seen such a significant jump in people growing their own food, becoming more interested in where their food is coming from. And I think those are all, did that answer your question? Yes. Or did I miss out? <laughs> because you got it. I think, you know, just talking in abstract terms. So I just wanted to give you an example. I, we talk to farmers about, you know, what do they think about what keeps them up at night? Mm -hmm. And that's a very good question. And then they began with all these stories about, you know, how will their farms survive? What will their children and grand, what is the legacy they are leaving for their children and grandchildren? And that just opened up a whole different set of conversation than coming to them and saying, you know, we have this much water in our reservoirs. This much needs to go to urban areas. Your share will be cut by this much. And then you are putting urban dwellers naturally in conflict with agriculture. It's it's so profound and seemingly simple and yet so hard in practice. But thank yeah. you for, for sharing that anecdote. As, as we wrap up, I'm curious, would you, what advice would you share with those who in earnest are doing their parts to try to advance the regenerative agriculture movement and or sustainability more generally? Again, I don't know what advice I can uh, give. I wouldn't say I'm really that I'm an expert on this. I think it's we are all learning. And as we said, regenerative agriculture, because it's so place specific, it's so context specific, it's so complex that until you are doing it on your own and learning with it every day, I think it is very difficult. This is the main difference between, see, the green revolution technology, we could have a blueprint, we could have, you know, this is the technology this is the way it needs to be implemented. It needs to come from top down. It came from the research institutions and in the form of prescriptions. And I think this is what we are trying to say is not the correct way. I think 
regenerative agriculture will really grow by practicing it, by experimenting with it and learning from it day by day. And so I don't think I have advice, but I think the only experience I would share is that just stick with it, stick with it. It's a long run thing. Don't get into it if you're thinking just of the very short term. So get into it with this long-term perspective, stay with it. There will, of course, as you pointed out, and I completely recognize, it's not going to be simple and easy in the beginning. And there are likely to be losses and very significant difficulties. But I think over the long run, that is the direction we need to go because the alternative, as we have seen, is complete devastation. It's not leading us anywhere. So we need to build this alternative collectively, all through experimentation and everyday learning and a long-term perspective. That's all I would say. Mm. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time and experience and all the wisdom that you were able to share. Thank you so much for this opportunity to share my thoughts. And I appreciated the conversational style. And I hope we can do this again. And I really appreciate your efforts. I want to commend you. I went to your website. I want to commend you for all the effort that you are doing. I think we need this whole community of people, this ecosystem of various people with varied talents working on it collectively. This is the only way this is going to succeed. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of On the Climate Record. This episode was made possible with the support of Arizona State University. If you liked this episode, please share it and rate and review us in your favorite podcasting app.